Hello and welcome to Data Stories with Isabel Becker. This is a podcast about why data is the latest innovation in storytelling and why you should know about it. Each episode, I'll be talking to a new guest about what data stories are, the place of data stories in culture and society today, and why they have the potential to change the world around us. Sarah Schlobom is the head of AI at Kubrick Group, a London-based data consultancy. Starting her data journey with a PhD in particle physics, using machine learning algorithms to identify subatomic particles, Sarah then did a graduate scheme at PwC, where she became a chartered accountant and continued working in financial services before joining Kubrick. Sarah is particularly interested in the ethical and regulatory challenges that AI brings, as well as the biases which need to be overcome to ensure that AI algorithms serve organisations and individuals alike. She encourages all her Kubrick colleagues to consider the dilemmas which were only recently matters of science fiction and bring creative thinking, empathy and problem-solving skills to their work, not just a mathematical mindset. AI technology provides the power to solve today's biggest challenges, but should be reserved for the right situations, she says. You don't need a chainsaw to butter your toast. Welcome, Sarah Schlobom, to the Data Stories with Isabel Becker podcast. I am delighted to have you here, the head of AI at Kubrick, your new post it's really exciting to have you and your experience and your academic credentials come to my podcast. I'm really pleased. So thank you so much. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I've been at Kubrick since the beginning of May, and it's an absolutely exciting opportunity to be here. Yeah, it's amazing. So tell us a bit about yourself and your background and how you got to Kubrick. Yeah, so I've sort of done the whole cycle of Kubrick in my career at this point. Sort of, If you think about the triangle of the graduate scheme, the client placement, and now on the Kubrick side as well. I originally got into machine learning as part of my PhD, which I did in experimental particle physics. I didn't find the Higgs boson, but eventually my work did contribute to help confirming it. But within that process, there's an awful lot of programming that goes on. I always joke that you should get sort of a free computer science degree along with it, because we used all sorts of interesting machine learning techniques to help identify certain types of particles. For example, I looked for particles that came from B quarks by using a neural network, and that kicked off my career. When I finished my PhD, I didn't go into academia because there's jobs for about 10% of the people who want them. I think part of me part of me did want to be Professor Sarah at the end of the day, but academia is a tough gig. I knew at the time I didn't know anything about business, really. So, so what I did was I joined a graduate scheme immediately after so I could get some additional training and, and get some of that business context around the technology that I already knew. So I joined the PwC graduate scheme in the UK. I started in Leeds and, and moved to Manchester. That was really cool. I learned a lot, sort of accidentally became a chartered accountant along the way. But I think it does help that I have that perspective with Kubrick graduates that I've been through the graduate scheme. So I sort of know hashtag graduate life and, <laughs> and all that. After that, I've kicked around financial services for quite some time. Most recently, I've been at HSBC, where I've worked with lots of junior people and have 
built out a lot of training for them. So so I also get that perspective from Kubrick. I've been on the client side and I know what it's like to have, you know, people who are basically fresh out of university land with you and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe I have to teach another one of you this. <laughs> so that's part of what I want to do at Kubrick is to make sure that I'm not, when, when our consultants go out to client sites, their managers get to say, oh, isn't it great? I don't have to teach them this basic thing again. Um, yeah, and I think that's really special that you've got that kind of all-rounded experience in the different perspectives. And I think that always helps when you're in the student's shoes and you're looking up to your teacher who's been in had that experience so yeah I like how you say you casually just became a chartered accountant along well the way. <laughs> you know it was that or get deported so it <laughs> seemed like the only logical option so I was gonna ask how come you so you're from the states I am right? from the states yeah I'm from um, outside of Chicago originally okay and how come you chose to work come so you studied in the states I did right? yeah I did came here to work. I came here for the graduate scheme I think in part because previously there really wasn't anything like a graduate scheme certainly when I was looking in the U.S., which is one of the reasons I'm really excited Kubrick is expanding into the U.S. Mm. I think once people see this, it'll really take off. Mm. But yeah, I think it was that that structure, that training, that sort of bridge between academic life and business life. When it came to the U.K., that was, that was a really difficult transition. You think, okay, culturally, you know, you're moving from one country to another. That's a huge step. It was. But in many ways, the bigger step was going from academia to business. Mm. And so, yeah, that's where having a bridge was really useful. What's the most significant shift, you'd say, from academia to business that you're talking about? For me personally, academics and people who want to be academics sort of love to argue, I think. Ah, okay. <laughs> and so like a healthy debate, that was a sign of a great meeting, right? If, if you went to an academic meeting and you had that stakeholder management is a slightly different concept in business. Mm. I think it was a lot of that, yeah. a lot of that shift. I think just the cultural norms about what a working day looks like, what an office looks like, how we go about what we do. Every every company is different. Every company has a slightly different culture, but but every sector has a different view and, and academia to business has a big shift as well. Mm. Well, yeah, it's really interesting to hear about your background, specifically coming to data from such a kind of place of like academic expertise. And now, you know, and then you're having your experience in business and now focusing on the kind of combination of those two things in graduates is really great to hear that. So the, w- the way I connected with Kubrick specifically was at a Women in Data event. So Women in Data is a fantastic organization that aims to get more women in data because I was certainly underrepresented in physics and it's true in a lot of technology. And Kubrick are great partners with them and it was great to see them there. And that's where I learned about them in detail. And then as soon as I heard, I heard from the recruiter that there was an opportunity available here, I jumped at it. Yes. So you're the head of AI, which is an umbrella term, as I understand, it incorporates machine learning, predictive analytics, and there's so much amazing development and potential for interesting products of artificial intelligence to help solve business problems. There's a large place for it in business, also in kind of healthcare and government. But as this might be, this is going to be playing devil's advocate But as head of AI, do you think that we're ever trying to predict too much or too often? Do we need to be creating kind of predictive machines this much? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I think I think humans have always tried to predict the future. If this is the podcast of data stories, if you look back at some of our oldest stories, they have to do a lot with prediction. Look back at, you know, the Greek myths. Look at, we still read Oedipus, we still read Macbeth. And that's a huge element in all of those stories. So to some extent, that's kind of just the human condition. We're always going to try and figure out, okay, what happens next? What are we trying to do? At least this time, it can be slightly data-driven. There are lots of ways that you have to be careful about that. The AI ethics is a, is a topic I care a lot about. But I think that's important. It's we've We've always learned from past data as well, like that's science, right? So then the next logical step is, okay, and what does that mean in the future? I think... Yeah, AI ethics is a topic that I care a lot about. Things like things like bias, things like making sure, you know, we're we're not mistreating people worse with the way that we're using machines. But I think there's a lot we can do to to be careful about it. I think we have to be careful that we're not doing any sort of spurious correlations when we're trying to predict things. That's a big one. Just because coincidentally two things happen together, that doesn't necessarily mean that one is predicting the other. And there's there's a lot of talk about, you know, causal AI and things like that. The other bit is that when you're learning from data, you've got to make sure that you're learning from the right data, the correct data, so that you're not trying to learn from too little data or you're trying, you know, you're making sure that you're not learning from data that's biased. There are a lot of there are a lot of news stories about how unfortunately that goes wrong. These are these are fascinating stories to read, but they're not good when it happens in in people's lives. There was a, re- a recruitment AI, for example, that picked up that a tech company didn't hire women and discounted women based on that in their CV rather than, you know, the actual factor. So we have to be careful. We definitely have to be careful and we have to get it right. But humans have always tried to learn from the past and we've always tried to predict the future and that's never going to change. That's really interesting. I guess the only difference is that it's now humans are driving machines to predict the future, whereas that wasn't so much the case in the past, or could you argue against that? <laughs> well, I mean, interestingly, in the stories, it doesn't go well for the people who try to predict the future, yeah. does it? You know, we're going to wind up killing our fathers and marrying our mothers, exactly. if, you, if you believe Oedipus. But yeah, it's anytime you do stuff with machines, anytime you automate things, anytime you give it more power, you can do things bigger, faster, stronger, all of that stuff. So if you're doing something wrong, you can go wrong, bigger, faster, stronger. Mm. Right? And the point is to, you know, anything you do, you can really amplify it in the age of automation. So let's hope that we're amplifying the good things and not the bad things. Mm. I like how you made the comparison to looking at stories and kind of learning from learning from the past to predict the future. We still read texts like Oedipus and Macbeth, I think you said, and mm-hmm. where we're looking into the past to be able to to be able to look to the future. And I really like that comparison. In my head, one of the major differences, as you said, you talked about the kind of the quality of data that we're basing those predictions on, the bias that's embedded on it, in in it. But from my perspective, it's about the differences about scale of input to those predictions. So when we've got when we're learning from books or texts or newspapers or things like that, that's kind of over the last you know, a few hundred years, that's how we've traditionally absorbed information, learned things and tried to predict the future. Whereas with data, we can have such huge quantities of it that we feed into a machine to predict something. So do you think that learning from like a huge data set about 
the past, something that only a machine can consume in a matter of minutes or something in a model. Do you think absorbing that type of scale of information in comparison to when we might learn from books or newspapers or something, do you think that changes the knowledge that we get because of the scale of the data that we that is being consumed into that prediction? I mean, at this point, the scale of books that are out there, we could never read any book. We could never read a significant portion of all the books that have been written at this point. I think we've always learned from data, right? If you're talking, if you're thinking of, okay, books are the traditional learning method, well, they are, but data is as well. Ultimately, what we're asking the computers to do is follow the scientific method. Say, here, look at some data, make some hypothesis about it, test it, see if it's right or not, move on. That, again, probably goes back as far as Aristotle that we have recorded. Probably somebody else did that at some point before. And I think it, it's interesting that you, you've mentioned books as well, because today at Kubrick, I've literally been teaching natural language processing. Mm. And so what we've been doing is reading in documents. For example, we looked at the text of Alice in Wonderland and generated a word cloud on it to see what happened and use that in this example. So we can even use computers to help us understand the books better. That I love linguistics. I love this topic in particular. When I was doing my undergraduate degree, I also did a degree in French. And I very nearly considered going to grad school for linguistics instead of physics. Mm -hmm. And uh, I might have come back around full circle because mm -hmm. computational linguistics is a huge area um, in machine learning. What do you enjoy about linguistics and how that translates to data and artificial intelligence? I love thinking about how words encode meaning. So if you think about programming languages, there's a reason we call them languages. And so I feel like I'm activating a lot of the same bits of my brain when I'm learning bits of Python as when I'm learning French. And it's all about thinking about the syntax and how I, I have a concept, but here's how I express it in one language versus another. You know, I find comparisons about which language do you think in. I think in English, but if I were thinking full-time in French, I would have a different way of experiencing the world, potentially. We're getting dangerous close to separate wharf territory, but, you know. <laughs> but for a long time, when I was programming heavily in R, if I started thinking about a program, I thought it in R. But I haven't used that in a while. Now I try to think more, I tend to think more in Python, because that's what I'm using more. And the analogy is there with languages as well. If I think about, okay, sentences exist in every language. I know how to construct a sentence in English, I know how to construct a sentence in, in French or whatever. Similarly, if I'm doing an if statement in R or Python or C++ or whatever, it's about how do I encode that and how do I carry that information and sometimes a very small mistake in both programming languages or actual languages can be um, catastrophic and embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. And can I just say what you've expressed there is a very eloquent expression of exactly what I think, <laughs> which is, yeah, that there is such an interesting relationship between language and data and kind of English language and programming languages. They're all languages. And it is about linguistics and how we choose to express meaning, encode meaning into, um, you know, a sentence or a script of code or something. I also like a lot of comments in my code. You <laughs> I like a lot of comments, comments in my code. Like there, there's almost as much English in my code as there is Python. So. I love that. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think another interesting aspect of it is is going the opposite direction and going to data visualization, mm. right? So one of the things that you can't do as a human, right, is sit down and digest a gigantic table of information, right? If you have this array full of ones and zeros, that's not super meaningful to you. You can use it for processing, but it's not really human readable. Whereas if you convert that into some kind of chart, into some kind of graphic, you can convey all of that information in an instant and our brains will process images so much faster than they will trying to read things sort of bit by bit. Yeah, exactly. And it's all about the common thread there is all about how do we communicate a message in the, in the most effective way possible. I came across that because I actually did a year during my undergraduate degree in the States at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. And I did a course called Is Coding a Language? Mm -hmm. And it was, and we learned a bit of Python and we looked at kind of philosophical study of semantics and just questioned whether coding is a language. And that's really how I got interested in data because I come from an English and arts background. And that really sparked it all. It was like, oh, well, look at this. It's just this relationship between the books that I read and the language that I enjoy consuming. But it's a it's only a short hop to kind mm -hmm. of the world of data and all and and it's just about a different way of expressing meaning. I think there are a lot of similarities, but there are probably a lot of differences as well. Yeah. I, th I think an interesting similarity is if you look at linguistics, we have con languages or, you know, conlangs, constructed languages, people try and come up with stuff. So you have things like, you know, Klingon or Valerian or whatever, these, these ones that are used for stories, but also ones where people just try to construct them because they can, they want to take this rule. A similar thing happens in programming, which I also love. You get these sort of novelty languages, like one that programs entirely based on Arnold Schwarzenegger coats, <laughs> like to, so to to compile, you say, get into Chopper, or <laughs> the one that talks like a lolcat, or one that will only compile if you say please to it often enough. <laughs> I think that that's interesting. I like that that happens on sort of both sides of that coin as well with natural languages and programming languages. Mm. People can be so creative. <laughs> and that's the thing about data. Sometimes people think it's not creative, mm. but it absolutely is. You you really need a creative problem-solving mindset to be able to tackle a lot of these problems. And there's also beauty in well-written code or a good, effective data visualization. You're not leaving, you know, an artistic sentiment behind because you're dealing with, with programs. It can be beautiful and elegant, too, just as an equation can be beautiful and elegant in physics. So I came across that course and making that connection between kind of the arts and data was something that I hadn't come across in the UK before I went to the States. And I found that there was a bit more open mindedness about the cross blending of the two schools of thought. So one of the differences that there is between the US and the UK educational systems is sort of at what point do you specialize? Mm, yeah. So in the US, look, and then there are certainly problems with the US educational system. I'm not claiming it's perfect. But I think a very interesting approach compared to the UK is you guys specialize from like 
age 16, possibly even earlier, to the point where you narrow down the number of subjects you do to like five by the time you're 18 or so. In the US, for the most part, that's the opposite. You get very, you don't specialize very much at high school, so up through age of 18 or so. Even at university, you tend to have a lot of what they're called general education requirements. And so there are trade-offs on both of that, right? You become, in the UK, you become more of a specialist in your area earlier on. On the other hand, in the US, I think you may get a little bit more of that breadth and you may get a little bit more of crossover because your English majors have to have a little bit of mathematics because your mathematicians still have to read Beowulf or whatever. Mm. And do you think that cross-pollination, let's call it, enables some of this creative approach to data in a way that's further ahead than we have in the UK with the way that we're so in the education system we're quite narrowed down to those subjects because I find kind of culturally in the US there's more of a, of a culture of cross-pollination of different types of things whether it be mixing Mexican food with Japanese in the same bowl or being an English major and studying maths at the same time I find that fusion of different sides of the spectrum of different things kind of enables that really exciting creativity and that's what I love about American culture and I wonder what you think about that kind of coming from there but then working in the UK and being in this role of head of AI but you know you're you have a focus on the creativity of data as well. I don't know I wouldn't certainly I think there are cultural reasons why you know America is the way it is. Most Americans are not Native Americans in the very traditional sense so so you do get a very multicultural experience so mixing food cultures. Yeah, of course, you'll have all sorts of fusion, uh, which is usually delicious. You also get things like Cheetos. So I'm not going to say American food is, is the <laughs> pinnacle of gastronomy either. No, I do think there's room for creativity. And I think people who are good at programming are creative. They may not necessarily apply that word to it. Mm. But I think those skills are there. And yeah, I absolutely don't think you have to have 100% mathematical STEM background to be able to get into data. Everyone can learn skills. And at the end of the day, we're all trying to digest information, whether that information comes to us in the written word or as some sort of you know, numerical analysis. At the end of the day, we're all trying to tell stories, to ask questions about, okay, how do I make my business make more money? And that's usually a combination of both, right? If you do a marketing campaign, it's a combination of all the sorts of creative aspects. You know, you've got the advert, but you've also got the data behind the advert, right? Nobody's going to launch a campaign without doing a trial on it and saying, you know, this was the customer feedback. They said this, they said that. That's data analysis. That's super important. It all goes hand in hand in every aspect of the business. So with data analysis and data science, some people might say that there is an assumption that the data that goes into data analysis and data science is all well and good and we trust it, we believe it's free of bias and we might expect to just take that data set as as true and not consider maybe how was that data set created maybe could there have been mistakes in there could there have been ulterior motives in creating that piece of data 
the data set might not be totally neutral as some people might expect it to be when they consume it and take it into analytics. So people have talked about analyzing the culture of a data set and not having that assumption that it's a neutral piece of information. How important do you think it is to kind of analyze the culture of a data set? So things like who created it, in what conditions? Yeah, I mean, how important is it look both ways before crossing the road? It's absolutely important. I don't take any data set for granted. <laughs> I absolutely do not. Does it show what you expect it to? And then, yeah, in terms of the sense of AI ethics, which is something that, that I've introduced in the curriculum, we have to check for bias. Humans have bias. That means bias is going to get into our data sets. I mean, if you, there are loads of really unfortunate but pertinent examples here. I mean, if you want to get really angry, there's a fantastic book called Invisible Women, which shows that a lot of data sets, you know, that we think make sense were, were tested on things that didn't involve half the population. So an awful lot of medical data, for example, has drugs only tested on men or, you know, classically heart attack symptoms aren't the typical ones that you think of for women. That happens along racial lines as well. Um, there was recently a big issue about healthcare spending that didn't address racial disparity well in the US. Lots of horrific examples there too. So I think we have to be really, really aware of things that have happened in the past and ways to try and check that we're not doing that in the future. One of the most important things that we can do is to make sure that we get more people into creating the data sets to begin with. Because as a woman, I'm probably going to look and say, hey, there's nobody that looks like me in this data set. But that goes for any kind of diversity, racial, religious background, socioeconomic background, etc. If you want data to serve all of society, the data you're feeding in needs to represent society. There's lots of ridiculous examples about you know, things not recognizing different colored skin tones, for example. One of the things you could have done is test it on people with different colored skin tones, but nobody thought of that at the time. Yeah, it's, uh, we all have bias, we all have blind spot, but we can all sort of work to overcome that as well. And we can build that into our automated systems where possible. Mm. When you say get more people to create the data set, how can we do that? It's a good question. <laughs> it's a big question. I mean, I think there's, I've thought about this a lot because, you know, I was sort of, there were sort of 20% of women in physics going through this, like my entire career, I've often been the only woman in a room. It's not great. And certainly at Kubrick, that's why we do things like partner with women in data. That's why we do things to track and target different types of diversity. Part of it is having good role models. Part of one of the reasons I try and do sort of effectively outreach is it's not because I love the sound of my own voice. No one loves the sound of their own voice for good scientific reasons. But it's because it matters to say, hey, there's someone who looks like me doing this. So I, um, I sort of remember the moment where I decided what to major in for university. I was a little Hermione Granger in school. I loved every subject. I couldn't decide what I was going to go into. And nobody ever sort of explicitly steered me away from doing math or science. But I just kind of got swept up into, yeah, okay, you like to read. Maybe you'll go do literature or something like that. But then my math teacher sent me to this women in engineering event at 
uh, the local university and I saw like, hey, girls can build robots. Robots are cool. <laughs> and that opened up just so much possibility. So there are so many great role models out there, so many more than there used to be when I was young. But I hope to be one and I hope to encourage the next generation to be one as well. You most definitely are doing that at Kubrick. <laughs> So moving on to a topic that I care about is the relationship between data and power, power over people. I think there's a general growing public awareness of the prominence of using data in business and the exciting potential of artificial intelligence. But I wonder whether people know enough that data becomes knowledge and knowledge becomes power and that the creation of data and the use of data isn't just something that businesses do to make money it's actually something that's intrinsically linked to if some people if a select number of people have certain data they can glean certain knowledge from that and that can give them certain advantages that other people might not have. So do you think there's enough of awareness of this relationship between data and power in society? I think people need to be much more aware of how their data is being used. It's being used for absolutely everything, right? The What you read is being pushed at you by various recommendation engines based on what you like, based on what your friends like. And that can ultimately shape your worldview. But it's being used to make all kinds of decisions like, are you going to get that mortgage or not? That's based on loads of information about you that you wouldn't have thought is relevant to that decision. You, almost every business, especially credit reference, will do some kind of customer segmentation on you. So say based on these sort of demographic characteristics that, you know, you have a cat and drive a Subaru, therefore they infer certain things about you. You fall into this type of category, therefore we will market you this, we will not market you that. And that can that can be huge, right? That can shape access to goods and services. And the difference between getting on the property ladder or not, that can make a huge difference to your financial success for life. But even seemingly innocuous data can be used for that. Your likes and clicks on Facebook, the way you write on Facebook can be analyzed and they can pick up all kinds of things about where you're from. So what people in the UK call trainers, some people call sneakers, I call them gym shoes. Okay. That puts me in a very small radius of originally coming from outside of Chicago. <laughs> yeah. So even just the seemingly innocuous phrase can tell you so much about me. Mm. And with things constantly scraping the internet and everyone putting everything about their lives on the internet, that becomes an incredibly rich source of data. I think The Economist was the one that, that coined the phrase, but data is the new oil. But, you know, that meant money back in the day. But yeah, everyone, everyone's using your data about you to make decisions about you. People need to be knowledgeable. So even if you pick up the newspaper and there's a graph in it, you need to be able to sort of critically analyze, you know, what is this graph trying to show me? Is it trying to mislead me? Here are some things to look for. You know, is it actually zeroed or is it trying to tell a story in a way that's biased or in a way that could be misleading? So I was going to ask you what your recommendations could be for what people can do but I guess would your response be education yeah I mean but it that doesn't have to be boring like there's all sorts of cool stuff there are like great interesting TED talks about data visualization and how it works and how how you can 
tell a story in, in a good way or a misleading way, as you can with anything. I think being aware of it, don't do things like, you know, what's your pirate name? It's the street you lived on and your pet's name. You might as well be giving out your banking details online. I think it's just knowing it, being aware of it and being a little bit more careful about what you place and where. But yeah, lots of lots of great books out there. Lots of great, for example, TED Talks, documentaries, things like that. I think it's a, it's a cool topic. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed talking about language and linguistics and data and too much automation. We've talked about analysing the culture of a data set and the relationship between data and power. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Stories with Isabel Becker. If you enjoyed it, please follow the podcast, rate it, give it a review and share it with your friends, colleagues, students, teachers, anyone who's curious about playing with data and stories. 